So the next frontier for advertising isn't virtual reality or holograms, as you might think. It's your dreams, according to sleep researchers. And they warn that this practice could turn into a nightmare. In an open letter recently, the scientists criticized the concept of dream advertising. That is using audio and video clips, companies engineer ads into your subconscious. And they say in their letter that not only does the practice already exist, but a prominent beer company has even publicly tested it out during last year's Super Bowl. The sleep researchers cite a press release as an example. And in it, the, the Molson Coors Beverage Company openly admitted that it could manipulate your dreams so that you would collectively see visions of alcoholic beverages dancing through your head using the science of guiding dreams. So how exactly do these marketers slither into our dreams? Well, Molson Coors collaborated with a Harvard psychiatry professor, and this doctor worked with the Coors team to develop a, a stimulus video film that induces relaxing, refreshing images, including waterfalls and mountains, and of course, Coors beer. Well, dreams are tricky, aren't they? They can be influenced by advertising or by our own subconscious fears, by our hopes, by our desires, or by that late night snack that you had before bed. And so as we come to chapter two of the book of Daniel, we're gonna discover that this is one of the pivotal chapters of scripture. Daniel two contains important truths about world history from God's point of view. The chapter covers a, a period of time that begins 600 years before Christ and stretches through all the centuries since and moves into the unknown future to the moment of Christ's return. To make matters even more interesting, this sweeping revelation was given not to a, a prophet of God, but to a pagan king. And we will soon see that his dream reveals the rise and the fall of four powerful world empires. Now we learned in our two previous messages from chapter one that Daniel and his friends were kidnapped from their homes in Israel, transported to Babylon. There they've entered that re-education process and it's during that process that Daniel establishes his credentials as a young man whom God could trust he had proved faithful to God and resolute in following God's laws by refusing to defile himself, by uh, uh, passing on the diet of unclean food, which would have compromised his Hebrew faith. So three years have passed since that momentous decision, and now Daniel is employed as a, a low-level advisor of some sort in the court of the king of Babylon. Now, the Babylonian culture was dominated by a belief not in one God, but in multiple gods and deities, and it was filled with pagan superstitions and magic and sorcery and astrology and a wide acceptance of good and bad luck. And it's in the context of the swirl of the strange and paranoid belief systems that Daniel finds himself living in Babylon in a culture steeped in superstition, 
but seeking to maintain his faith and his commitment and his trust to Jehovah God. Now, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon has yet to have a personal encounter with Jehovah, the creator, the true God of Israel. And this reminds me that when a person is not in a personal relationship with the Lord, it leaves him or her open to superstition, to fear, to anxiety, to manipulation by others. And what a sad state of affairs that is, to be dominated in your life by a fear of bad luck. Now, many years ago in in a ministry that I was serving in, uh, there was a a lady, uh, a widow lady, and she asked me to assist her in purchasing a car. It had come time for her to buy a car, but her husband had passed away a few years before, and he'd always done that, and so she was a bit intimidated by the process. And so I said, yes, I'll go with you. And before we arrived at the car lot, we discussed her price range and the kind of vehicle that she'd be interested in. And she was pretty specific about it. Um, she wanted a, you know, a small four-door sedan that got good gas mileage and was reliable and, and in good condition. And so when we were li- uh, arrived, of course, a salesperson came right out to meet us and I explained the parameters of what we were looking for. And he said, well, why don't you wait here for a few moments and I'm going to go and get a car that I think you might be interested in. And so he pulled up with a car that he thought might just fit the bill. A few moments later, here he is in a late model Toyota. It had less than 30,000 miles on it. It had only one previous owner. It was still under warranty. And best of all, it was in my friend's price range. And so she and I took it for a test drive which went great. And we returned back to the lot and the salesperson met us and he said, how do you like the car? And my friend replied that she liked the car a lot. She said, it's very comfortable and it's very easy to handle and it's very clean and I like that. But then to our surprise, she said, but I can't buy this car. We kind of looked at her and she said, it's maroon. And that color brings bad luck. And she was serious. I didn't quite know what to say. And then she added, and also notice that the license plate ends in 733. That adds up to 13, and that is an unlucky number. Wow. And you'll see, for, for the superstitious, dreams and other events outside of our normal consciousness take on an outsized importance of their own. And often they, they lead to things like fear and irrationality. Now, certainly God can and he has spoken to people in dreams. In fact, there's no, no doubt that the incident in this chapter is one of those times when God uses a dream. We are going to see that King Nebuchadnezzar was deeply disturbed by this dream, which serves to remind us of just how helpful, or helpless, excuse me, how helpless we are when it comes to facing the ultimate questions of life when we don't have the Lord in our life. Nebuchadnezzar's dream made him insecure and frustrated and angry because it showed the limitations of a man. And the story shows how he snapped. 
I want to read the first part of it for you this morning, verses 1 through 11. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians and the enchanters and the sorcerers and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. And so they came in and they stood before the king and the king said to them, I had a dream and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, the word from me is firm. If you don't make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you tell the dream and its interpretation, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. Well, they answered a second time and said, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you're trying to gain time because you see that the word for me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the times change. Therefore, Tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demands. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The king, uh, the thing that the king asks is difficult. And no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Amen. That is God's word. And so Nebuchadnezzar loses his temper with his wise men when they make the request that he should tell them the dream and they, they couldn't do it. And the trouble was he didn't trust them, did he? He did not trust them. If he gave them the hints, they're likely to just fake their way through it and provide some sort of explanation. But now they're stuck. And so the wise men panic and they say the king is asking something that's impossible, which only the gods could reveal. And that was the final straw for Nebuchadnezzar. And so he commands Arioch, the, the captain of his guard, to round up all of the magicians and the wise men and to haul them away and to kill them. You see, superstition often leads to mistrust, which leads to anger which leads to irrationality and even to death, including death for people not even involved in this situation. And all of this then brings us to our friend Daniel. Daniel comes into the picture. Remember last week we learned that Daniel and his three close friends had been appointed as wise men and counselors to the king. And so by default, they are sentenced to death themselves. Poor Daniel was blissfully unaware of all this until the knock came at the door for him to be arrested. And so we see, first of all, peril faced. Daniel and his companions were suddenly brought into real peril through no fault of their own. There was a great commotion as the wise men and the other suspects were rounded up for slaughter. 
But Daniel knew nothing of the panic and the despair of the others. But what he did know, what he did know was that in the midst of all of this trouble, God was still in charge. I think that's so awesome. We sang several songs about that today. God is in charge through the storms of life, through the times we don't understand, through the difficulties. And Daniel knew that. Daniel was not thrown off balance by the shock, even though he's got a death sentence on his head. He doesn't question the faithfulness of God. God, who are you to leave me in this terrible situation? No. Daniel accepted the situation knowing the faithfulness of God. And you know, friends, often it is not until times of sudden upheaval that one can tell whether a Christian has built up reserves of faith in God. The test often comes suddenly and then it's too late to make further preparation. And so the time, friends, for preparation is now. It's today and every day to seek to know God better and to build up our reserves of faith for when the difficult times come, and they will. And so Daniel reacted differently from all the other religious men in Babylon because he is in touch with a God who he knows cares for his people and can help them in their time of need. You know, God has always desired that the people of Israel would be a light to the other nations, just as he desires today that his children, Christ followers, that's us, are meant to reflect the light of God in the world around us. And so this confidence in God gave Daniel a poise and a serenity that disarmed the captain of the guard, Ariok, who showed up to arrest him. Notice that uh, Daniel calmly just kind of lowers the temperature of the situation, simply inquiring, what, what's the trouble? Is there any way I can help? And he must have convinced the guard that he could do some good because he is then allowed to have an audience with the king, the angry king, I might add. And he was able to get a stay of execution. All because Daniel had a quiet confidence that God would provide a solution. He doesn't know what the solution is, but he trusts in God that something will be taken care of. There's no brash attempt on his part to convert Nebuchadnezzar. No, Daniel simply knew that something had to be done, first of all, between himself and God before he took any action on his own. And so that leads to our next point. Not only is peril faced, but next we see prayer is offered. Prayer is offered. Daniel was a very practical believer in God. He knew that it was not sufficient to believe vaguely that God would somehow solve the problem. A life-threatening issue had suddenly arisen. How would he react? How would we react? Daniel was well prepared for the emergency, not because he had any foreknowledge, but because, I believe, of, because of his daily habit of communion with God. You see, Daniel was already a man of prayer. He didn't offer a prayer up in the moment. He'd had a lifetime of prayer leading up to this. 
In fact, in a later chapter, we're going to see that Daniel had a special place of prayer in his house, a special room where the windows were open towards Jerusalem, where he prayed regularly. That practice of prayer was a source of his inner strength, his peace, and his calmness under tremendous pressure. I think there's a lot that we can learn from Daniel here. When fear, when uncertainty, when doubt raises up, when they raise up their ugly heads in your life, what is your go-to? What do you do when times get tough? Do you panic? Do you dig in and fix it now? Do you blame somebody else? Do you bury your head and hope it all goes away? Do you expect someone else to figure out the solution? Well, Daniel, his go-to is prayer. But I want you to note that he doesn't just pray by himself. He urgently goes and requests his three companions to join him in earnest prayer that the wisdom from the God of heaven would be given to them. And so they had a prayer meeting. I think this is a great, again, a great pattern for us to follow. You know, too often, friends, we go it alone, right? Even if we do pray, we pray alone. You know, someone once said that a problem shared is a problem halved. I like that statement. Especially if it's shared with the Lord and the Lord's people. And guess what? The faith of these young men was rewarded. Their prayers were answered. We see that the secret of the king's dream was revealed to Daniel during the night. He prayed and God revealed a solution. But I want us to see one more thing. Daniel didn't just rush off then. I got the solution, time to go see the king. No. He had a greater priority. This is what I want us to see in our third point. For the text goes on to show us of praise released. Praise released. Instead of rushing off to do something, Daniel takes time, first of all, to praise the Lord. He bursts into a hymn of praise, giving glory to God that God has intervened in this situation. I want to invite you to read this passage with me, beginning in verse 20. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. Amen. The word of God. And so Daniel freely acknowledges that it is God, God who can reveal times and seasons which affect the destiny of mankind. You know, the the first two lines of of this passage is really a hymn. And they're very much like the words out of the Psalms or out of Job. And I I just, I have to believe that, that Daniel more than likely recalled God's word. 
and the songs that he'd been raised singing. And so he remembers God's power and God's promises as he recites these truths. And again, friends, this is a great model for us to follow. It is God who is the fount of true wisdom. It is God who is the only one who knows what the future will bring. And so Daniel thanked God that the Lord had given him an understanding beyond the reach of human resources. You know, many of us have been Christians a long time. Many of us have known the sufficiency of God in a time of need. You could, you could testify about that. But do we always remember to return thanks to God when our prayers are answered? It's not enough to cry out to God for help. But let us be a people that are appreciative vocally to God about what he has done and is doing in our life. Well, once again, Daniel has offered his prayer of thanksgiving and now he's ready to go say Nebuchadnezzar, which leads us into our, our fourth point that we want to look at this morning. And that is prophecy interpreted. Prophecy interpreted. I want to read the, the next little section here for you. Therefore, Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in to the king and I will show the king the interpretation. And then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, no. No wise man, no enchanter, no magicians or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has answered. But, that's an important word, isn't it? But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Now what I want you to notice first of all here is that Daniel is very careful to give God the glory. He told Nebuchadnezzar that this whole thing was beyond all human wisdom but there was a God in heaven who was a revealer of secrets and he had made known to Nebuchadnezzar what was to happen in the future. And friends, again, this is an important principle that you and I can follow. And it's this. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about Jesus. Christianity is not some sort of self-improvement program. It's not a success workshop or a get-rich-quick scheme. Our faith is about God and his plan and his purposes as revealed in Jesus Christ. And that is what we must share with those around us. And so after setting the record straight, Daniel plunged right into recounting to Nebuchadnezzar the vision that he'd seen. 
he tells them, you've seen a great image. It's huge. It's terrifying. It's got a gold head and arms and chests of silver, trunks of thigh, uh, trunks and thighs of bronze, legs of iron. Its feet are part iron, part clay. Then, king, as you were watching a stone, one which had, had been not cut out in a quarry, struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and smashed it into pieces. It ground to dust and the wind blew it away. And then that stone which had not been broken, excuse me, the stone that had broken the image began to get bigger and bigger until it became what? A huge mountain that finally filled the whole earth. What a weird, bizarre dream. And I wonder, as the vision was recounted to Nebuchadnezzar by Daniel, I wonder if it's likely that he would be thinking about himself. It's kind of likely, I think, because he's kind of a megalomaniac. All right? And I wonder if it's likely that he's thinking about all the glories of his empire. But of course, he's got to be wondering what happens next. Deep inside, he's got to know that his life is limited in time, as is all of ours. And so perhaps he's wondering if all that he had accomplished is going to crumble to dust. And so the sort of crisis brings him back to reality. And I think it can do that for us as well when we're in a crisis. When we understand how helpless we are, that our time on this earth is limited, that our impact is limited. And that we don't know everything about the future and that we're helpless at times. Helpless, that is, unless we're in a right relationship with God, who is our great helper. Well, the king is reduced to speechlessness. But Daniel knew it was the right dream. He knew it because he knows God doesn't make any mistakes. But what in the world does it mean? Well, Daniel is brutally frank in ex explaining the meaning to Nebuchadnezzar. All right, what does he say? His empire, although it's represented by this beautiful golden head, is soon going to pass away. You know, kings may rule and dictators may govern and make proud statements. You know, Adolf Hitler once made a statement about the Third Reich that it would last for a thousand years. How'd that work out for him? You see, they forget that above and beyond everything is the almighty, sovereign God, who Daniel refers to here as the God of the heavens. It is God who allows power to those in authority, and they are always accountable to him. And so Daniel goes on to explain that just as the, the head of gold gave way to the arms and chest of silver, so Nebuchadnezzar's mighty Babylonian empire would be succeeded by a, a kingdom inferior to its predecessor. And then similarly, down the body. Daniel, though, gives no hints as to the identity of the rest of these successive empires. And so what are we to make of that? Well, I want to take a little side trip here for just a, a few moments to say that the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, like its counterpart in the New Testament, the book of Re Revelation, have a lot of what we call apocalyptic language, all right? They're, they're looking to the future and to things that are to come. And 
Too often, friends, that has been a a hunting ground for those who like to believe that they can unravel all future events, including the end of time as we know it and the second coming of Christ. And we've seen that in our own lifetime as well as throughout the history of the church. There's people that have risen up to say, I know the secret, I know this, I know this, follow my teaching, buy my book, and you'll find out. There's no shortage of those people. And these themes that are used in Daniel and Revelation are often foretold in symbolic language. And I want us to understand as we work through Daniel that much damage can be done in the lives of believers and in churches. Much damage can be done when we have an unhealthy focus about the timing of the end. In fact, it's been my observation that when Christians have that unhealthy focus on what they don't know, that we often neglect to pursue the very things that we do know. Sadly, this has often been the case with the book of Daniel. But I want to leave aside all those extremists for a few moments, and I want to just briefly uh, zip through here and talk about three principles of interpretation that are often applied to the book of Daniel. These are, we could say, schools of thought. Uh, And of course, each of them have their own offshoots and camps of their own. Uh, And understanding, I think, some of the basics about these three viewpoints will help us to navigate uh, the prophetic scriptures like Daniel that we're in right now more carefully. And especially, I think they'll help us to decipher the plethora of books and websites and podcasts and YouTube channels which purport to have all the answers. Matter of fact, I'll just say this right now. If you find any of those things and they say, I've got all the answers, I want to just challenge you. Turn it off. Throw it away. Ignore it. And come back to God's word. So, what are the three common viewpoints? I'm going to zip through these. First, there is, as a matter of fact, Lynn, let's go to the, the third one that lists all three of them. Okay, so, all right, so these are the, the basic points of view about prophetic scripture. Number one, we call it the preterist. End time prophecies have already been fulfilled. That comes from a Latin word uh, that talks about the past, preta, the past, all right? So, somebody would look at the book of Daniel and say, oh, it's all done. It's all in the past. All right, the historist. All right, that kind of combines the first and the third. It identifies that apocalyptic prophecy uh, and symbolic beings with historical persons, primarily in the past, but sometimes leading up into the present. And then, of course, the third one is the futurist, understanding much of the apocalyptic prophecy to be related to the, the period following the removal of the church from the world. And I want to dwell on that for just a moment. That last third view there has only been a view in the kingdom of God, the church, for about the last 200 years or so. It was first popularized in the 1850s. And it it includes an emphasis on ideas like the rapture and the thousand-year reign and things like that. So if you've heard those phrases being bandied about, um, it's been heavily emphasized and promoted in recent decades through if you're familiar with the Left Behind series of novels or movies, a uh, very uh, prominent focus on this kind of futurist uh, uh, application of scripture. 
So having said all of that, which one is right? Well, I believe, and this is my opinion, that this is a case where one can say, and really with, with reverence, only God knows. Only God knows, and I'm okay saying that. So then you might say to this to me, all right, Rob, does that mean we just throw up our hands and, and give up? No, no, no. Do we ignore these valuable books and sections of scripture? No, we don't. Do we pick one of these viewpoints and become so firmly entrenched that we break fellowship with believers who have a different understanding? The answer, I hope, is none of the above. I want to suggest a fourth approach. A fourth approach. Rather than choosing a point of view and then going to Scripture and seeing how I can fit Scripture into my point of view, I want to suggest we do something differently, and that is to go to Scripture and compare it with Scripture in order to form a viewpoint of what we believe. Do you see the twist and the difference there? If we can do that while at the same time remaining humble enough to receive new ideas on the subject and above all exhibit love towards other believers who, who might have a totally different alternative viewpoint than I do, if we can do that when it comes to God's family, we're going to be a lot better off. You know, when it comes to the future, let's remember what the Apostle Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 13 when he says, now we see through a glass darkly. All right? We don't see everything yet. We also need to remember the words of the Lord Jesus to his disciples right before his ascension as he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. It's not for you. If it wasn't for Peter and James and Paul or any of the early Christians, it's not for you and me either. Or anybody that writes a book or promotes a website or a podcast. Now, having said that, let's get back to the text. What do we make of the second and the third and the fourth future kingdoms represented by the parts of that statue, the silver, the bronze, and the iron, and then a mixture of, of iron and pottery? I'm going to just go through this really quickly, but we know that the Babylonian Empire, in one form or another, lasted for many centuries. Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar that after him, another kingdom would arise inferior. Daniel also told Nebuchadnezzar that his empire had been ordained by God to rule over the earth. And so it was rightly depicted as gold. And as silver is of less value, most scholars would agree that the next kingdom down below the Babylonian empire would be the Medo-Persian empire, which followed the Babylonian empire and eventually conquered the Babylonians. The third kingdom then, shown in the image by the bronze trunken thighs, said Daniel, would rule over all the earth again. And that's particularly applicable to the kingdom of Greece and the spread of Greek power by Alexander the Great. If you remember anything about Alexander the Great, his conquests were so extensive that he commanded that he would be called the king of all the earth. 
And there's a, uh, there's a story, I don't know if it's a true story or a legend, but it is that Alexander wept when there were no more kingdoms to conquer in his lifetime. And then the fourth kingdom, Daniel says, would be strong, hard as iron, crushing and breaking everything which came in its way, but its final state would be a divided kingdom. Sometimes firm, sometimes brittle, just as the feet and the toes of the image were a mixture of iron and baked clay. And many students of prophecy identify the Roman Empire with the iron and clay legs and the feet in the image. If you remember the Roman Empire that was so prevalent at the time of Jesus in the early church and so much in power and, and later uh, persecuted the Christians, but then later began to mix Christianity with their pagan religions. And we see then, then the spread and then eventually the collapse of the Roman Empire in the fourth century and it becomes a divided kingdom. And so when we look at Daniel's explanation of the vision in the image, we find though that he doesn't seem to be too concerned about defining exactly what those four empires represented, does he? What does he do instead? He, he fixes in Nebuchadnezzar's mind the certainty of the coming and triumph of a greater kingdom. I believe he's talking about the kingdom of God. The whole climax of the vision is the destruction of the image, isn't it? By a supernatural means, by that stone that was not come out from a quarry that falls on the feet and crushes the whole thing to death. I'm gonna skip ahead in my notes here just a little bit, Lynn, down to the, the bottom of page 12. Uh, but what, what is Daniel talking about here? Throughout time and eternity, uh, people have speculated. You know, what, was it, uh, you know, Constantine or Napoleon or Hitler or Stalin? Was it Russia? Was it the European common market? People have all kinds of ideas all through time about these 10 toes and all those things. Uh, and we'll talk more about the, the 10 when we get to chapter 7. But I, I just want to share this. The view that I favor is that the image represents the world. Okay? The world. As thought of politically and culturally in opposition to true spiritual values. And don't we still experience that today? The pull of the world, the pull of God's kingdom, and here we are in the middle. Now certainly it, it speaks of past empires, Babylonians and Persians and Greeks and Romans. It could also represent more recent powers as I, I listed there, the Napoleon or the Islamic Empire or British imperialism or Hitler. It, it could represent things in our contemporary world. It could be warning about the excesses of capitalism or the ruthlessness of communism. It could stand really though, I think for any system, any system that refuses to follow the standards of God's kingdom. It can stand for anything, person, or idea which takes the place of God in our lives and therefore will one day be destroyed. These kingdoms are powers. Some of them are good. Some of them are evil. But eventually will all fall apart. God reveals to Nebuchadnezzar that it's all coming through that stone. The stone cut from a mountain by no human hand. 
That's, that's Jesus, friends. You remember in the New Testament, in Matthew, it's described as a stone that will make men stumble. It's talking about Jesus. Peter writes about a rock that will make them fall. He's talking about the Lord. His is the kingdom that the God of heaven will set up and will never be destroyed. And friends, we are invited into that kingdom. Well, Daniel had a memorable day, didn't he? All right, it starts off where he's on the list to be executed. And it ends with his rapid promotion to becoming the chief executive of the central province of Babylon. But in all of that, Daniel keeps his head and he keeps his humility. He went out of way, his way to recommend his three friends would share the work with him. And so they're appointed as administrators in the surrounding areas. And we might say that Daniel was in the right place at the right time. That's absolutely true. But there was more to it than that. He was in the place where God could use him. He was ready and willing to be God's servant. And that, friends, was the secret of his success. And so I want to conclude by just asking this simple question, what about you? Are you in a position to be used by God? Are you ready and are you willing no matter the cost? Let's pray together. Father God, we, we thank you for your word, which is so powerful. We thank you for 